Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy. Do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Father, you have given us treasure in your word, and we pray that we would accept it, not set it aside, not turn on it, but listen to it and heed it. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Culture is formed by theology. Culture is formed by theology. That's a basic truism in the church. And it makes it sound as if all we have to do is get the theology right and the culture will inevitably follow. But here's the kicker. Your culture is formed by the theology you actually live. Not just the theology on the page. In another life, another profession. I could easily imagine myself as a a film director, probably a, a great film director, when I think about it. Indulge me for a moment. We're going to do something I don't know that we've ever done before. We're going to begin this morning's sermon with, with a movie clip. But don't get worried. The screen is not going to whir down. We're not going to fire up the projector. This is just going to be a movie clip in your mind because it's a film I never made. A coming-of-age story, bittersweet, set in the 80s. A lot of stuff now is set in the 80s. We're nostalgic for that time. So, so picture the scene with me. It's 1980. Picture a tree somewhere in the south in the evening. One of those mossy, atmospheric trees. And as the camera pushes in, we see upon the tree a yellow ribbon round the tree trunk. And around the tree also a ring of children, six or seven kids in ages probably between seven and 12 years old, all around the tree holding hands together. And the children are singing songs of praise. And after they sing, they they clasping hands together, they pray for hostages who are being held around the world in Iran. And as you contemplate that scene, the camera pulls back a little bit beyond the tree in the circle of children, and you see outside that circle another child, about 10 years old, a boy, a little bit pudgy, but quite cute and promising for his age. He stands there glowering, frowning as he looks upon the other children, his his arms crossed, looking at them skeptically, 
Not because he doesn't believe in, in singing songs of, of praise. Not because he doesn't believe in prayer. Not because he isn't concerned about the hostages. He just doesn't like idolatry. He just doesn't like people calling upon the name of Jesus who don't really believe in Jesus. And he knows that none of these children truly are followers of Jesus. How does he know? They don't go to his church. And he knows that only the people who go to his church actually believe. And everybody else is just pretending. And now, one more move of the camera. A dissolve to the modern day. And the little pharisaical child becomes the preacher in the pulpit that you see before you now. Because in case you didn't guess, I was that child. I was that little Pharisee who looked upon other people's prayer and worship with contempt because he knew that none of it was real. The culture of a community is formed by the theology of the community. Not the theology it says it believes, the theology it actually puts into practice. The theology it lives. If the culture of the community is self-righteous, then the theology of the community is self-righteous, even if the community claims to believe in grace. The community that I grew up in formed self-righteous Pharisees like me at a young age. Even though we claimed to believe in grace, we were the only people who believed in grace. And yet, looking back, I can see that, that I wasn't someone who had actually understood what grace means. I'm not blaming the people, though, in that community. What I want to do is critique the culture of the community, because that's what Jesus does to us here. And I'm not claiming that if you would only get your theology right, then your culture would reform accordingly, because as I've already said, you have to live the theology, not just espouse it for it to make a difference. I'm also not suggesting that if the culture of the Christian community is right, then every single member of that community will get it right. Of course not. We're a family of sinners at our best. We will always be hypocritical and pharisaical. We will always struggle to get these things right, even when we're living the theology that we should. I'm not saying any of those things, but I am saying this. Jesus told us, to love one another. And he did more than tell us, he showed us how to do that through his example. And he teaches us here what that looks like in our text. The love that Jesus called us to is the foundation of our theology because that love is the foundation of everything that we have in Christ. It is out of that love that he does everything that he does for us. One things the elders of this church have to take seriously, one flower that we have to nurture at all costs, is that the culture of grace flows out of a theology of grace that we actually live and don't just talk about. It actually has to be real before it will change who we are. If you look in Matthew 7, in these six verses, Jesus tells us more than you may realize 
about how to create a loving community, what that would actually look like. He tells us two things in particular that are invaluable to us if we want to be the kind of community that lives its theology and doesn't just preach it. First of all, he tells us to pursue our own holiness in a spirit of humility. Pursue holiness, but pursue your own holiness and do it in a spirit of humility. And he also teaches us to share our hope with those who are listening without being distracted by conflict. For the first five verses we'll look at, that first paragraph, he teaches us to pursue holiness in humility. And then that final verse, he teaches us to share our hope with those who are listening without getting distracted by conflict. If you look at Jesus' words, don't judge, he says. Do not judge. Judge not, lest you be judged. There's a larger context that he's speaking to that we've already seen as we've kind of worked ourselves forward through the sermon. Jesus is giving us this instruction in the larger context of his commandment to love. To love your neighbor, more than that, to love your enemies. And so as we think about what it means not to judge, we need to think about it in the context of that call to a very difficult kind of love. One way to love one another is to follow what Jesus says here. Judge not that you be not judged. You might say that's the theme of his sermon. Do not judge or you will be judged. And then he explains himself. He says, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. In other words, this is the logic of the golden rule, like doing unto others as you would have them do unto you. Judge others the way you want to be judged. And when you see that clearly, Jesus, when he says, do not judge, is not saying never make a judgment, never form an opinion about something. That's obvious. It's so obvious that you probably can't hear a sermon about this text without a long digression on all of the appropriate times where you should judge. We're going to skip the digression on when you should judge, and we're going to focus on the not judging part uh, for the most part here. But you can see the point isn't never judge. The point is when you judge, remember you're going to be judged the same way that you judge. The way that you judge others is going to dictate how you yourself will be judged. So don't judge unfairly. This is a warning to us not to be harsh in our criticism and our judgment of others. The point is to extend charity in your judgment because you want charity too. Be merciful when you weigh the faults of others, because you want your faults to be weighed with mercy. Basically, treat other people the way you yourself want to be treated. The way you want God to treat you. You want the judge of all things to be kind when he judges your sins. So when you judge the sins of others, show kindness. And you want the giver of all good things to be generous when he measures out your portion. So when you give to others, measure out generously. That's what Jesus is urging. Basically, if this is what you want, this is how you should live. Live as if you believe in the generosity of God. Live as if you believe in His mercy and grace. 
Jesus goes on to describe what you might think of as two kinds of blindness, two kinds of bias that, that we have when we judge one another harshly. Uh, a blindness or let's say a, a biased way of seeing and then a biased way of living. First seeing, he says, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Why is it that it's so easy to perceive the faults of others, even when they're small? And yet you cannot see your own faults, even when they're huge. A a problem of perception. That the sins of others are so easy to spot. And your own are difficult even to perceive. And then there's another problem, a, a bias that has to do with how we live. He says, or... How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? So not just that you don't see your own fault when you pick at him for his, but but beyond that, you're offering to, quote unquote, help him get himself right. You're going to help him overcome the sin when the reality is your own sin is, is looming large. And is undealt with. It's not just that you're not seeing things clearly, but you're you're living in that blindness. You're you're not seeing your true condition. And that leads Jesus to a challenge. He, he wakes us up a little. He says, "You hypocrite! You hypocrite! First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye." It's not wrong to see the faults of others, and it's not wrong to help others overcome their faults. But Jesus says it's hypocritical to do that unless you have done something else first. Unless you have seen your own sins, focused on them, and dealt with them. Then, then, when you have pursued holiness in humility, you will be in a right state to help others without hypocrisy. So if you distill down Jesus' teaching here, he's giving us really a a simple method to to love one another, to live in peace with one another. He says, examine yourself and see your own problem. Be honest with yourself about your own shortcomings rather than looking around you and fixating on the faults of others. And then focus on removing your own problem. Pursue your own holiness with humility. Be concerned about your sin. Be concerned about where you have fallen short. Make that your focus. And then you will see clearly. Then you will see things as they truly are. And seeing clearly will let you encourage your brother in holiness without hypocrisy. That's the model of a loving community. Not to judge one another self-righteously. Not to be focused on the faults of one another but to be focused on our own shortcomings in such a way that we're actually dealing with them and can encourage others as they do themselves. You know the emphasis in Jesus' teaching? The focus is on your sin, not your brother's. On your faults, not his. That's where the true emphasis in our community ought to be. And yet, he is a sinner. He is a sinner. There's, there's no doubt about that. The people that Jesus is saying, don't, don't pick them apart. They are actually guilty. Your brothers and sisters in Christ seated in this room have faulty beliefs 
and faulty practices, and that's a given. And if you were to scrutinize the people around you, you would notice some specks. And you would notice some logs as well. If you really put your mind to it and asked yourself whether any of these people that you go to church with are really good examples to follow, I don't think any of us would stand up to that level of scrutiny. The question isn't whether or not you're surrounded by sinners. You are. The question is, how are you going to live with them? How will you relate to people who do have specks in their eyes? How will you treat them? Will you extend to them the same charity that you want when others consider your faults? Will you extend more grace to yourself than you will to other people? If it's the latter, if you're willing to give yourself the benefit of the doubt and not them, then Jesus is saying, don't expect more grace if you're not willing to show it. If you're judging other people harshly, don't expect to be judged mildly yourself. That's the warning. And it's a warning that we need to hear. As I say, when we come across teachings like this of Jesus, do not judge, it's almost impossible to avoid the, the, the qualifier of, okay, yes, but of course we have to judge. And it's very important in certain situations to judge. And we go down that path far enough to where we make the foundational teaching, the starting point of Christ's doctrine, feel more and more like an optional extra. Jesus says, love one another as I have loved you. We hear those words and we think about them. and We say, okay, I think what Jesus means is make sure everybody agrees with you. And if you can manage on top of that, also show some kindness, that would be nice too. As if Jesus is constantly telling us what matters most in your relations with one another is, is that you don't put up with the faults of others. When in fact, what Jesus starts with is that you love one another. We are drawn to fight against others. And yet we've been called to fight against ourselves. But we'd rather not do that. And so we turn that outside. And we act as if the holiness of others is what we've been called to pursue. Yes, they're sinners, but so are you. As Paul says in Romans chapter 2, verse 1, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. So do not judge. I'm going to ask you some questions. I want you to think about these things. This is a way of diagnosing how much you need to hear this. Um, questions we all need to ask ourselves and take seriously. Do you give your brother's beliefs the most charitable interpretation possible or the most uncharitable? When you disagree with one another, are you charitable? As gracious as you can be in interpreting what other people mean, or is it the other way around? Do you give your brothers and sisters the benefit of the doubt? Or do you put words into their mouths? Do you make it seem as if they espouse whatever is lying at the bottom of the slippery slope that you assume that they're on? Do you just go ahead and say, whatever terrible thing a person like you must believe, I'm sure you believe it and act accordingly. 
When you imagine what motives drive your brothers and sisters to do the things that they do or to believe the things that they believe, are you generous? Are you gracious? Or are you severe in the way that you judge their motives? Are you more likely to attribute to your brothers and sisters better intentions than they have or worse intentions than they have? I don't want to think too deeply on those questions because the longer I linger on them, the the more God calls to my mind the logs that are in my own eye, not the specks that are in yours. I've certainly been guilty of judging you in harsher ways than I should have. Of assuming that your motives were worse than they were. And that your beliefs were, were more defective than they are. I confess that before you. I haven't loved you the way that I should love you. And I imagine each of us, if we were to come up here, could confess exactly the same thing. That before these words of Jesus, we all stand condemned because we all have within us that desire to judge one another as a way of knowing that we are righteous, assuring ourselves that we are the good ones because look how bad they are. One commenter here notes that it is the self-righteous and censorious person who is particularly eager to correct the faults of others. Like, yes, definitely. But a community where believers love one another will not be self-righteous and will not be censorious. A community where people love one another for real will be not quick to correct the faults of others, but focusing on loving others as we work together on our shortcomings. If we pursue holiness ourselves, then we're guarding against the hypocrisy that Jesus warns us about. We're gaining a clarity of vision that Jesus says enables us to help our brothers and sisters in their walk. And that's the kind of community that that God calls us to be. If we want to go down the path of criticism and judgment, of pointing out the shortcomings of others, great. But we won't be fulfilling our calling in Christ We won't be embodying the love that the church has been called to embody. We can only do that by treating one another the way we hope God will treat us. That's verses 1-5. through And then verse 6, Jesus adds that thing about swine and pearls at the end. It's an interesting verse because scholars struggle a little bit over what Jesus is talking about here. There's there's an aspect of it that's obvious, but the specific context is lost to us. Matthew is the only one of the Gospels that records this particular teaching that we find in verse 6, and there's no other uh, context that's given. So we don't circle back. The disciples never come to Jesus and say, hey, that thing you said about pigs and pearls. Can you go over that again and explain the hidden meaning? That never happens. And so we're kind of left here to wonder, like, like what does it mean and why does Matthew place it here? You know, he's compiling the teachings of Jesus in these discourse sections in his gospel. Why does he put that saying here? What does it mean? Personally, as I look at verse 6, I think it's a little bit of like a knockout verse. I think it makes a lot of sense 
that this comes immediately after what Jesus has been saying. When you take on board Jesus' teaching about judging fairly, inevitably there's this reaction that you can have. It's like this, but, 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 wait a second, hold on, I get it, love one another. We've got to love one another in the church. I've been called to love my brothers and sisters in Christ, and that's going to be difficult, but I think I can do it. But that surely means it's open season on everybody else, right? You're saying don't take out, like don't lash out on Christians what you should save for the world, right, Jesus? Is that the point that you're making? No, it's not. And so Jesus follows up with these words. And, and the words of Jesus here are actually reminiscent of other things taught, for example, in Proverbs. If you look in the book of Proverbs in chapter 9, uh, verses 7 and 8, whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abuse. and He who reproves a wicked man incurs injury. Do not reprove a scoffer or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man and he will love you. If you flip ahead to Proverbs 23 and verse 9, it says, do not speak in the hearing of a fool or he will despise the good sense of your words. Jesus actually applies that logic in Matthew 10 when he's instructing uh, and sending out his followers. He says in Matthew 10, 14, if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Unless you think this is just one of Jesus' sayings that no one ever puts into practice in the book of Acts, you actually find people doing this. Paul does this at least twice. In Acts 13, verse 51, it says, They shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. They met with resistance in their ministry, and they literally did what Jesus said to do. They didn't even interpret it metaphorically. They literally shook off the dust and got on their way. Then again in Acts 18, when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, this is Paul speaking, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. So literally putting that into practice. Putting the gospel of grace and hope out into the world, and when it's met with hostility, moving on to share it with other people, doesn't seem right. I would have thought when it's met with hostility, that was Paul's signal, it's time to settle in. It's time to establish your ministry here because there's plenty of people to fight with here. Lots of wrong people you could engage with day after day after day. You could build a ministry on this. That's not what he does. He shakes off the dust and he moves on. Share your hope with those who are listening without getting distracted by conflict. The kingdom of Christ isn't spread through conflict. This counsel of Jesus is to the effect of using discernment as we proclaim the kingdom. As Matthew 10 shows, Jesus counsels patience in the face of hostility. Instead of arguing, instead of debating, instead of an endless cycle of back and forth which makes the focus on the conflict, instead Jesus says, move on. And keep spreading the news. Keep bringing the hope where people are longing for it, where they're listening. The Christian community is a hope-spreading community, not a combative community. Jesus did not establish a debating club 
on earth because he likes to see people owned. Jesus established a community of love intended to share that love with the wider world. We said last time, in ever-increasing circles. The gospel ministry is not about rhetorically slaying God's enemies. The gospel ministry is about bringing God's enemies back to life by grace. If that's true, then a loving church community focuses each member on applying the truth to his own situation rather than using the truth as a tool to critique the faults of others. If that's true, then a believer in a Christian community works on his or her own sins rather than railing against the sins of brothers and sisters. And a member of a loving Christian community focuses on spreading the truth, not arguing over it. Let's go back to the tree at the very beginning. That scene of those children around the tree being watched by a little 10-year-old Pharisee. And as we consider that scene, as we see that little Pharisee, yeah, one message you can take away is don't be that kid. Don't be the scoffer who's judging the faith of others because it doesn't measure up, because yours doesn't either. Don't be that kid. But also don't judge him. And don't despise him. Because he also represents all of us in our faults and in our sin. We've all been there before, judging others harshly when we ourselves hope to be judged with mercy. As you consider that tree and as you circle it, as you stand hand in hand with your brothers and sisters in Christ, as we sing and we pray together, let's not comfort ourselves that we're not like those other people. Let's not comfort ourselves that, that unlike them, we're a community of love. They're Pharisees, we're not. Hooray for us. Instead, let's examine ourselves and let's be honest about the ways in which we failed to do what we've been called to do. Because congratulating ourselves is just another way to be preoccupied by their sin when we should be working on ours instead. So let's do that. Let's focus on ourselves. And as we do that, let's treat skeptics and let's treat Pharisees kindly. Let's treat them the way Jesus treats us, the way we want to be treated by him. Let's judge them gently. And when they trample grace underfoot and they turn to attack you, remember what Jesus says, turn the other cheek. Don't be distracted by the conflict. Trust in the Spirit to work in them as He has worked in you. Do this, and you're living your theology. You're living your faith. Pursue Christ in humility, and you will find Him. Share hope with those who are listening, and don't be distracted by conflict. And believe that the same God who turned your heart can turn anyone. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. 
We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.